so far in our study about the 21st century guide to the New Testament, we have looked at the first three Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means seeing together. And so we've seen how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they see together. They tell the story of Jesus in a very similar way, and they cover many of the same events. When we looked at Matthew, we said that he is there to tell the Jews that their Messiah has come. The book of Mark tells the Romans that the all-powerful God, the true God of the universe, God of creation, has come to the earth as a suffering servant and savior. Then we saw last week that the book of Luke tells this man named Theophilus and the Greek mind, and probably by extension us today, um, we really think along Greek lines. He tells them that we can be sure that Jesus was the historical figure who was fully God and fully man and on a mission to save the lost. And now tonight we'll be able to look at the Gospel of John. Most people, if they were to, to subtitle the Gospel of John, would say it's the Gospel according to the beloved disciple. And, and that's true, he was the beloved disciple. But I chose to subtitle it, The Gospel According to a Self-Appointed Aristocrat. And, and part of that is because it goes along with the other ats, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I do have a reason for calling it that. And so at the very end of the lesson, I think we'll draw it back to why he is the self-appointed aristocrat. What we have in John's Gospel is very unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they wrote, I mean, they wrote wonderful books. But if you read their writing, it, it is more like a journalist covering the events and covering the teachings of Jesus. And when we open up John's Gospel, we have almost a, a biography that's written by a best friend who is writing about just, and as he, as he writes, it, you can't help but sense the fact that he's reminiscing about just how wonderful Jesus was and who he was and why he came. And, and certainly we see those things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John's Gospel, you get such a personal side of Jesus. And so it's very unique. 90% of John's Gospel has no synoptic counterpart. So 90% of what he wrote, 90% of the events and the teachings that he covered, they can't be found anywhere else in the Gospels. John did not write of Jesus' genealogy. He did not write of his birth or of his childhood, or of his temptation, or of his transfiguration. He didn't write about his appointment of the disciples, or his institution of the Last Supper. He said he had no details about the Garden of Gethsemane, and he didn't give any detail about the ascension. And so there are many of the, the, the what we would consider the most important events of the life of Jesus that just aren't covered in his gospel. But it almost seems like what John did is he said, here, we have, we have these wonderful three Gospels that tell this part of the story of the life of Jesus. I am going to give you something that's going to tell you, just, just a, a, give you a greater perspective, to give you some events that aren't covered here. I want to give you some of the teachings that were more personal and intimate that Jesus gave. In John's Gospel, he never teaches in parables, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't teach at all. In fact, the upper room discourse, it's one of the greatest discourses on how to live the Christian life. Let's pray and then we'll get into the important information. Father, we love you. We thank you for this evening. Lord, we are so grateful for your entire word. Lord, that, it, that all of its pages declare your glory, that they reveal to us who you are and who Jesus Christ is. And Lord, tonight we're especially grateful for the Gospel of John that shows us this personal side, shows us the compassion of Jesus. 
and, and more clearly than, than any of the other Gospels, shows the divinity of Christ. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the salvation that you've given, the life that you've given for those that believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author of John's Gospel is John. Now that is something that, that very recently has been debated among some more liberal scholars, but most of conservative scholarship throughout history, and especially the church fathers, have agreed that John, the Apostle John, was the author of John's Gospel. Um, we have a little bit of internal evidence of this. Uh, in John chapter 21, verse 20, it says, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. So he's talking about the disciple that Jesus loved in verse 20. In verse 20. And then in verse 24, it says, This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And so there's a little bit of internal evidence that John wrote it, but like I've said in the other Gospels, there's really no internal evidence given. They almost wrote them as anonymous. And one thing that is interesting is that the four Gospels that have always been accepted by the church as being authentic, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of those Gospels give explicit internal evidence as to the author. But all of the, the Gospels that were called pseudepigrapha, they're, they're the false Gospels, all of those Gospels immediately ascribe the Gospel to somebody like Peter or Thomas or Barnabas or whoever else wrote them. I mean, they didn't actually write them. They were written you know, hundreds of years after the death of Christ. But what I'm trying to say is that these Gospels, they're written anonymously, but everybody accepted them as truth, as Scripture, uh, as the true Gospels. And so we can be very certain, very sure, that John wrote it. So let's look at the life of John. I want to start off just with four kind of titles of who he was. First of all, we see John the Fisherman. John the Fisherman is just the son of Zebedee. He is brother of a guy named James. And he's the guy that has a temper. And as we go through the, the Gospels, we see this picture of a man who was just a hardworking guy, a fairly normal guy who had a, a bit of a temper. I mean, he was certainly not somebody you would expect to choose. As a fisherman, it meant, you know, he certainly wasn't a, a high-class member of society. Uh, in Galilee, fishing was the main blue-collar job that people had, and so that's what he did. Then we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, that John earns the title with his brother as the Sons of Thunder. And in this story, the Samaritans have rejected Christ. They, they, they don't want anything to do with him at this point, or at least this group doesn't. And so John, very kindly, offers to Jesus that he will call down fire from heaven to consume them. <laughs> okay? John is an angry dude. He, he sees that these people are rejecting Jesus and, and being unkind to him. He says, Jesus, hey, I, I, I'll take care of it. Let me just call fire from heaven. Now, think of that. I mean, you're telling the Son of God that you're going to talk to God. And, I mean, it, it, what kind of authority does he have to do that? None at all. But that was his attitude. And so he is one of the sons of thunder. But what is fascinating about him is that, as we'll see, he went from this son of thunder to the disciple of love, or the apostle of love. Just a complete transformation in his character. Um, we find in John chapter 13, verse 23, and John chapter 21, verse 20, that John is called the beloved disciple, or the disciple that Jesus loved. John wrote this, and he never named himself, but he just named a couple of times this disciple who Jesus loved, and uh, he is the one that at the Last Supper is pictured as laying against the chest of Jesus. 
as they eat. And just very much an intimate kind of relationship, close friendship there. At the crucifixion, John is there, and he is the one that is given the task of caring for Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so, again, in that that story, we see wonderful compassion by Jesus, that in the midst of all of, like, the midst of the wrath of God pouring on his head, he thinks about his mother to take care of her. What a wonderful thing. But the person that he chooses is John, and I think it's just because John and Jesus had a very close relationship. And there are times that we think of Jesus as like he was the guy that walked around and glowed all the time, and people would just like drip on every word, but we forget the humanity of Jesus. And just in this close relationship, I think we see, hey, Jesus had a best friend. I mean, that's kind of the picture that we have here of their relationship. Jesus was entirely human as well as God. So we see John the fisherman at first, and then we get into the book of Acts, and we see John the sidekick. Now, in in the Gospels, John is one of the three uh, special or the apostles of the inner circle. So you have Peter, you have James and John, who are brothers, and they are there for some events that nobody else is, sometime in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, at the Transfiguration. They're there when nobody else is. They were just always there. Well, when we get into the book of Acts, we have John always there once again with Peter. But very often, he is not in the lead role. He's more of a sidekick. And so at Pentecost, we, we know that all of the disciples, 120 gathered in the upper room, were preaching and speaking in tongues. But it's Peter that stands up, and he preaches the message to the crowd. And then later on, they go into the temple, and they see the man that's crippled, and he's at the beautiful gate. And so Peter is the one. Now, John is there. But Peter's the one that that speaks to the man and tells them that he's going to heal him or or that Jesus can heal him. And so the man is healed and they preach a message to the crowd and it's Peter that preaches the message and John is there to support him. And then they're arrested and they get another chance to stand trial and and Peter preaches again. And then Peter and John are both beaten and they're both whipped and warned by the, the Sanhedrin to stop preaching about Jesus. And they say, should we obey God or men? They ask that question. And so we don't have Peter in the, or sorry, we don't have John in the limelight very often, but we always have him there. You know, they, they go to the revival in Samaria, and John is again with Peter. And after that, we don't hear too much about him in the rest of the book of Acts. So we have John, the fisherman, John the sidekick, and then in the epistles, and quite often in the, the writings of the early church fathers, we have John the Elder. And this was a title that was peculiar to him because we don't have, you you never hear about Peter the Elder or Paul the Elder. And we know that in the Bible, the elder, the position of elder was synonymous with bishop and overseer and and pastor. But when we think of that, usually we think in in terms of local church. Because every time that it's it's spoken about, it's in terms of somebody that's going to be the elder of a local church. But John was writing to different churches in in 2nd and 3rd John, and he introduces himself as the elder. And it would seem like, uh, at least I mean, over much of the world at this time when he wrote, that people knew who the elder was. Now, if you start thinking about the qualifications or the, or the proper conduct of what an elder would be, they would shepherd, right? They would love. They would take care of. They would be concerned with. They would, when necessary, they would try and 
protect and get rid of evil and, and point out sin, but very often they're there to be an, an encouragement to their church and to build them up and to, to guide them and lead them. And here, across the whole world, this guy, John, who could have been called John the Apostle all the time, is instead called John the Elder. And I think we start to see some of these characteristics of John change from the guy who was just, he was mean, and he was ready to call down fire from heaven, to now he's the guy where everybody looks at him as the guy that kind of oversees the churches. He just, he's an elder, he protects, he takes care of, he loves. And, and at times he reproves and he rebukes, but we see very clearly in First John that he is the apostle of love. So John is now changing, and we see that most of all in John the author. John the author. He wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And uh, as we go through all of these books, you will see two themes. And certainly certain books have more themes or less themes, but there are the themes of love and the themes of justice or judgment. And they're true all the time. Uh, we, we very clearly see justice and judgment being done in the book of Revelation. But in, gospel, in John's Gospel, Jesus, I mean, certainly we see his compassion, we see his love over and over again. In 1 John, we see love all over it, right? It, it is the, the letter of love. But when we look at those books, we still see justice and we still see judgment right alongside love. And I think that is just a good reminder for us as a church. Yes, we're all about love. We love people. And, you know, there is something that's truth. And, and there's a, a judge in heaven. And there, there is justice and righteousness and holiness that also are important. And so John, all, all of his books, they carry those two themes, love and justice. So that is, that is John. And there's much that can be said about John, and we'll probably touch on him again at the end. But let's move on. Um, the date of John's gospel. There are two very popular dates given. Um, some people argue for an earlier date, between 50 and 70, and they argue this primarily for two reasons. One is because there's a time in John, I think it's John chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, that Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool. Okay? And, and so they say, well, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. I mean destroyed, the temple destroyed, everything destroyed. Um, I don't think we grasp how much all of Palestine changed at that time. From that time until, I think it was 1948, Israel didn't have a land that was theirs. I mean, it, it was, I know that they were under Roman control before, but basically Palestine was ruled by a guy who, was, who called himself a Jew, and it was primarily Jewish. I mean, they were allowed to follow Jewish laws in Palestine. But when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin was disbanded, um, the Sadducees were gone, they didn't worship in a temple, they didn't have a central gathering place, people no longer took pilgrimages to Jerusalem, it, it just changed the face of Judaism. And now instead of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, you have rabbis of local synagogues all over the world that take prominence. And so it changes. Well, a lot of people will say, well, he probably wrote between AD 50 and AD 70 because he doesn't mention the destruction of the temple. And he says is at one point where he should have said was. Those are two arguments. I don't think they're quite as strong as the arguments for an 80 to 95 argument. I, I kind of side with that. 
There are many reasons for that. I'll give you one. A, a guy named Arrhenius. He was the disciple of a man named Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. Okay, so, so this man, John the Apostle, he taught Polycarp. Polycarp taught Irenaeus, and Irenaeus said this, John, the disciple of our Lord, who laid back on his breast, published the gospel while he was resident at Ephesus in Asia. And so here, he was, he was a pastor of the church of a- Ephesus. We know this, and we know that's where he was before he was taken to the Isle of Patmos, where he was exiled, and that's where he wrote Revelation. So prior to that, he was in Ephesus, and that's when Irenaeus says that, that John wrote. Okay, so pretty, pretty strong evidence there. We'll move on. What was John's purpose? John's purpose was to show that Jesus is the divine Son of God, and all who believe on him will be granted eternal life. Jesus is the divine Son of God. All who believe on him will be granted eternal life. Among theologians, there are a number of different purposes that, that, are tr- that, that try to be offered. I mean, John is a, a fascinating book to study because in one sense, as I said, it, it, it's simple. I mean, anybody can read it. Everybody can read it and just they can see who Jesus is. And in another sense, it's, it's incredibly complex. And so trying to discover you know, how, what John was thinking and what direction he was going and what purpose he had for saying certain things, it's hard to discover. But I think the best thing to do is to probably go back to what John said about his own gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he said, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And so it says there are many, many things that Jesus did. I'm going to tell you why I recorded what I recorded for you. Verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So he says, hey, listen, I I have basically two purposes here. I want you to believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, I want you to have life through his name. The interesting thing is that the, the word believe there means two different things, or or the same thing but in a different way. First, he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wants you to believe. I mean, that's, that's your initial point of faith. But then he says, and then in believing. So as you believe, as you continue to believe, it starts in believe and then it continues in believing. I want you to live and have life in his name. And so that is his purpose. His purpose is, first of all, evangelistic. I want you to believe. But it's also... Uh, a purpose of edification. He wants to build you up. He wants you to grow. He wants you to continue believing and have life in his name. And that is why John writes. He writes for unbelievers. He writes, writes for Christians. He, write, he writes for the world. There are many messianic, messianic sorry, signs that confirm that Jesus is the Christ. Many messianic signs. John recorded eight miracles of Jesus. And in his gospel, he refers to them as signs. Now, many of the other gospels refer to the power of Jesus and his miracles. He's trying to show this, that they were signs of something. Okay, and he makes that clear. It's a different word. And the signs are things like he turned water into wine. He healed a nobleman's son. He healed the lame man. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He gave sight to a blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And he 
the, the miraculous catch of fish that happens after the resurrection, and certainly the resurrection, I mean, the greatest sign of all. And, and so these are the miracles he records. Out of the miracles, five of them are unique to his gospel. Five of them you can't find anywhere else. And so in the Messianic signs, he's showing that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, I want you to believe that he is the Christ. Okay, I'm going to show you that. We have all of these signs that point to Jesus being the Christ. And then he said, then you have the Messianic I am statements. And these are some really neat statements that Jesus makes about himself. And I think in these statements, if you were to, you know, take a few years and study these statements, you would learn so much about who Jesus is. I am statements confirm that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, I am the bread of life. Think about all of the practical applications to that for our lives. He is the bread of life. I mean, he is our sustenance. Bread is the, the staple of what we eat. It's the most important thing. I mean, and he is that for our life. So daily we need that bread. Daily we need to live and, and eat and consume this truth about Jesus and who he is. He is the bread of life. Yeah, he can offer life like that. I am the light of the world. Well, you think about that, that means there's, I mean, if he is the light of the world, then everything else is darkness. And so if we want to walk in light, what do we need to walk in? Jesus. I am the gate for the sheep. Okay, so we, we kind of get that picture, right? The idea is that there are, there are sheep, God's sheep, God's people. How do you get into heaven? How do you get into where you have to go? You've got to go through the gate. You're not going over the wall or under the wall or any other way. He is the gate. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. I am the good shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Shepherd protects and takes care of and provides for. A shepherd just loves his sheep. And he is the shepherd. He's not just the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Okay? And so there's just so many wonderful things about how Jesus takes care of his people in that statement. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. If you want to know how to have life, if you want to be resurrected someday, hey, I am that guy. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I mean, Jesus' discourse in John chapter 15 about the vine, it, it, it's... The key to the Christian life. We are understanding your place is a branch. And that if you want to live the Christian life, you have to be plugged into the vine. And everything that you need will come from the vine. But he is the vine. And without Jesus, you are nothing. You have no power. You have no purpose. You have no meaning. I mean, nothing matters unless you're plugged into that vine. And so we should spend our entire lives striving to make sure that we're, we're plugged into the source of life. And finally, he says, I am that I am. Okay, John 8, 58. Be, before Abraham was, I am. And it's just so clear that Jesus there is making the claim of deity. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I believe, God says, tell them that I am the I am. I am that I am. That, that's who I am. And here Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I am eternal. I am from everlasting to everlasting. And it's funny, the, the Jews knew what he was talking about. They knew he was claiming to be deity. Don't ever say that Jesus didn't claim to be God, because in verse 59 it says, Then they took up stones to cast at him.
but Jesus hid himself. And so they knew. I mean, they were trying to kill him because he just claimed to be God. He is the I am. Finally, we see that Jesus is the Christ, that he's somebody that you ought to believe in because of the witnesses that Jesus was sent from God to be the Messiah. And I won't go through the verses here, but we have witnesses from God, witnesses from the Son, witness from the Holy Spirit, witness from the Scriptures, witness from the works of Jesus, these miracles and signs. Witness from John the Baptist. John was the forerunner of Christ. He, he pointed to Christ. Witness from the disciples and witness from changed lives because of Jesus' ministry. I mean, we see very clearly there that Jesus was sent from God from all of these witnesses. And so John's gospel, if you remember two words about the purpose, believe and live. Believe and live. And that is what John writes about. I think the word believe is in John's gospel 98 times. And the word live is in John's gospel 36 times. And over and over again, John is pushing this thing. Listen, guys, here is who Jesus is. You need to believe. And if you believe then you will have life. The audience. John's Gospel was, first of all, written for the whole world. I say the whole world because we, we very clearly see that John's Gospel has reached to all cultures and all people. If, if you want to translate a book of the Bible into another language, the first one you translate is the Gospel of John. People understand it. It is a great evangelistic tool. If it, when uh, our church, actually, earlier, probably about eight years ago or so, we went out across Chatham handing out John and Romans. You have the Gospel of John because it just, it's, it's a very clear picture of the Gospel. And so it was written for the whole world because, I mean, everybody can get it. It's simple and yet complex. But I believe that John's original intention may have been geared toward diaspora Jews. And a diaspora Jew is just a Jew of the dispersion and by the time John wrote, almost all Jews, if it was the later date, almost all Jews would have been diaspora Jews. They would have been living in other cultures to show them that, listen, Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. D.A. Carson was the one that said that John's gospel is simplicity wrapped in complexity. It's simple enough to follow and enjoy. It's direct enough to understand and apply. And it's theologically deep enough to spend the rest of your life medita meditating on and studying. It's a wonderful book. Profoundly deep and simple enough for anyone. What was the outline of the book? John's Gospel starts very purposefully. Right from the very beginning, John knows why he's writing. The prologue in John chapter 1 to John, 1 verse 1 to 1 verse 18 is one of the greatest dissertations on who Jesus was in all of Scripture. And he starts out, and I'll, we'll just read a few verses. These are very familiar, but, I mean, what a wonderful way to start your gospel. A lot of people point out that John didn't have a nativity story, and that's true. He didn't have the physical nativity story. But I believe here we have kind of a theological nativity story. Okay? The other gospels, they kind of tell you how it all happened, but this gospel is going to tell you what happened. I mean, what it really means, why it happened. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
right from the beginning. You start off, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Word. He, he is with God. He is God. He's the creator of all things. And, and there was nothing that was created that wasn't created by him. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So he's life and light. Move down to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this word, this God, who made all things, became flesh. He was incarnate. He took upon flesh in himself. And, and in him, now because of what we see in the life of Jesus, because we see his mission, because of his acts, we can see the full glory of God in him. We see the grace and the truth that belongs to God. So many wonderful things said about Jesus. And so just the prologue, a fantastic portion of Scripture, a portion worth memorizing, I think. Um, and then we see the book, John chapter 1, verse 19 to 12, verse 50. It's the book of signs. Uh, scholars have kind of attributed these two divisions in the book. The book of signs up to chapter, the end of chapter 12, there we see his miracles, his signs, um, the I am statements, all of those things that prove who he is. And then the book of glory in verse 13, chapter, sorry, chapter 13 to chapter 20. It's the book of glory. And there we see the, the upper room discourse and the passion of Christ and his death and resurrection. Just because the, the upper room discourse is unique to John's gospel, I thought I'd share with you a couple of the things that happen in there. First of all, we have the upper room, upper room discourse begin with the washing of feet. Not found elsewhere. Jesus washed their feet. Okay, we see his service and his humility. The new commandment that he gives, that you love one another as I have loved you. We see that Jesus is, he teaches about heaven very clearly. He is the way, the truth, and the life to heaven. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come again to receive us unto himself. We see the promise of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that will come, the teaching about Jesus being the vine and us as the branches. Uh, he continues in chapter 16 about the work of the Holy Spirit. And then his uh, wonderful high priestly prayer in chapter 17. It's just a great section of scripture. It's a very intimate section. He's with his disciples and he's, and he's sharing and teaching these things, just his disciples. Finally, John concludes his gospel with the epilogue, that is chapter 21. It is the role of Peter, the role of the disciples to come. We see the role of some of the women and what's, what's going to happen, and then a wonderful conclusion, and, a, and he gives his purpose as to why he wrote. And so uh, that is John's gospel, kind of in a nutshell, the outline. Key verse we've already read is John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and, and many other signs. Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Believe and live. So what is the application? The application to John's gospel. First of all, I think we should see the centrality of the gospel in message and mission. John declares the message of the gospel clearly and with authority. You cannot miss the gospel in John's gospel, right? You understand the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners. And we look at his gospel and you say, okay, let's pick out the key themes. You'd probably start with something like the theme of judgment and justice. It's certainly there. 
when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he, he very clearly, I mean, one of the most loving verses of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. And then he goes on for the next few verses to explain the condemnation of those that don't believe and the salvation of those that do believe. There, there is condemnation. There is justice and judgment. We would also probably speak about the theme of the Incarnation that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And John covers that very clearly. And if we're presenting the gospel, we start with, hey, listen, you're a sinner, there's justice, there's judgment. But Jesus became a man, the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb. And by the way, the Lamb of God is a name given to Jesus only found in John's gospel. And so we would, we would see the incarnation. We would see the climactic event of the cross. And John's gospel, again, it builds the cross. It's the climax. It's what Jesus came for. We would see belief, the necessity of belief. And we've already said 98 times in John's Gospel, he says believe. We would say that there's a promise of eternal life, that you can have life in his name. And, and John writes all about eternal life. And then if we were presenting the Gospel, we would certainly talk about just the, the whole reason that Jesus came. And, and John's Gospel in a nutshell, says, listen, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and if you believe, you will have life. He presents the gospel. And so we see the centrality of the gospel in his message. And John demonstrates the mission of Jesus as well. Miracles were signs that pointed to the message. Okay, there are a lot of things that Jesus did to point to the message, but we shouldn't miss what Jesus did. Because as believers, we don't just have a message. We do have a message, but we have a mission that goes alongside that message. And so we have th this mission that was completed with love, and we see the love of Christ through the, all of the Gospels. Listen, if, if you're trying to give out the message of Christ, and you don't have this mission of love along with it, then you've missed it, because that is not what Jesus did. His message was certainly a message of judgment, but it was also a message of life and love. And if you don't have this mission alongside the message, you've missed it. <laughs> I didn't even mean for that to be all M's, but it works. <laughs> The mission engaged all kinds of people from all walks of life. And it, it almost seems like John purposely picked out different people, like the, the Samaritan woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery. And, and he takes these people that everybody would have thought of as a, as a sinner, as a, a worthless, as somebody that you won't have anything to do with. Okay? She should be stoned or she's a dog. I mean, those are the, the two women that we have. And those stories are found in John's Gospel to say, listen, you engage all kinds of people from all walks of life. And so if we, are, we have the message of Christ, but we're not on a mission to present it to all kinds of people from all walks of life, then we're doing it wrong. The mission was primarily spiritual with necessary social effects. We've probably heard a lot about the social gospel, and, and you might be a little bit leery of the social gospel. You say, okay, well, you know what? Jesus had a message, and every single thing he did pointed to that message, but while he was pointing to the message, he was on that mission, and it was, a, in some ways, a social mission. Okay, he did many good social things for people. He healed people. He fed people. He loved people, poor people, and sick people. And, I mean, he was on, I hate to say he was on a social mission. He was on a mission of the gospel, but that included many social aspects of it. And so, if we're thinking about how we present the gospel, hey, there should be some of that love involved. 
There should be some of the, the feet to what we say we believe. The mission was passed on to his disciples. And so it didn't just end with Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. The, the same mission. Show people that Christ is the Son of the living God, so that believing they can have life through his name. And that is our mission as well. The centrality of the gospel and the, in message and mission is very clearly seen in the gospel of John. But I want us to take a step back and see that the carriers of the gospel are us. Okay? People like us. All Christians everywhere. I, I, I've called the gospels different things, right? I've subtitled them different things. And you probably think that, that that's been weird and strange. And I was kind of planning that at the end of this, we would look at who these four men were and consider the fact that Jesus picked four people in the history of the universe to write about his life. Okay? This, I mean, it's a pretty special task to be given, right? Four people. And we understand that the entire word of God declares who Jesus is. We know that. It reveals who Jesus is. But, I mean, honestly, isn't it the four Gospels that you go to when you want to know about Jesus? And the four Gospels that help us understand some of the Old Testament passages and some of the things that Paul writes about Jesus, we can go back and we can say, okay, well, I can ground that in Jesus' life and what he said and what he did. Four guys. You have the Jewish bureaucrat. Right? Traitor to his people. The guy that I would never want to hang around. The, the tax collector. The Jewish bureaucrat. You have the young scaredy cat. The guy that runs away, possibly after the cross, but certainly runs away on the missions trip. Yeah, he, 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 no, not full of courage. Not a guy who's just willing to stand down. He's a guy that's running away because he's scared. Young scaredy cat. Mark. You have the educated plutocrat. Okay, so it's not just for people that, you know, are either scared or are disloyal and... Here you have a guy who's educated, who is a plutocrat. He, he's, he's rich. He's smart. I mean, he's, he's got everything seemingly together in his life. And he gets Luke to write the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And then we have the self-appointed aristocrat. And an aristocrat is usually thought of as somebody who, who is the best of something or thinks they're the best of something and has a great position of authority. And you remember that it was James and John that went to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, when you get to heaven, we want to sit on your right hand. In fact, how they did it is they said, Jesus, I just want to ask you one thing. I, just want, I want you to do something for me. Oh, okay, what is it, John? I want you to make sure that I'm at your right hand. Self-appointed aristocrat. I want to be the second guy in charge of the world, the entire universe. I want to be that guy. Um, Self-appointed aristocrat. I mean, the, the arrogance, the pride that we see in John his arrogance in calling down fire from heaven. We look at these four men that Jesus chose to write about his life, and we would say, what weird choices. Why would you ever choose people like that to tell the world about your son? He chose us too, right? Didn't he give us the same job? to take this message about the same Jesus and the gospel of the same Jesus and to go out and tell the world about him, about what he did, about why he came, about his mission and, his, and, and the gospel message? He did. That is what God does. And so don't ever think that you're not qualified or you're not good enough or you're too sinful or uh, you're, you're, just, you're not the per right person for the job. 
if, you met, if you're anything like these four guys, you're exactly the right person. We see his mission in the Gospel of John, completed with love to all kinds of people all over the place. We see his message. There's judgment, but there's a Savior, that God became flesh and he died for the sins of people. And now we have been given the commission, the great commission to go out and share the gospel with others, to be a witness of the light. Do you know that Jesus said that I am the light of the world? And then in Matthew's gospel, he, he said that you are the light of the world. We are supposed to take what we know about Jesus and, and what Jesus is making us into and be lights in our world. And that is John's message.